Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Halakha 101 class taught by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. So we're going to actually skip a few simanim. I know we were we were doing some work around Shabbat in terms of location and selling and renting and all those kinds of things last week. And there, it goes on for a long time with the same topic. So I thought we would skip ahead a little bit, given that for many of us, we aren't dealing with fields and sheep, et cetera, um, and wanted to get to things that, that might be a little bit more relevant to our, to our lives today. So we're going to actually look at Simon 249. I'm going to share my screen in just one second. And this Simon is actually going to talk about the preparation. It's going to get into, I should say, the conversation around preparation for Shabbat. So um, the the title, so to speak, is Dinim Hashayachim Laer Shabbat. So the rules that are um, that are close to or that apply to Friday. Um, now, when we talk about Erev Shabbat, a lot of people assume that Erev Shabbat is Friday night. Um, but Erev Shabbat is actually just the lead up to Shabbat, which is actually Friday day. Um, we do call Friday night Erev Shabbat as well because Erev does mean evening, but it really is just all the time leading up to when Shabbat would start. So Erev Shabbat, when we're talking in just a moment about preparation, we're actually talking about Friday the day, not necessarily the evening of, in, in fact, not just not necessarily, definitely not just Friday night um, in terms of Shabbat um, observance. So I'm going to read uh, in the English just because it, 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 this first one will be a little bit easier to just do in the English. On Friday from the beginning of the day onward, so again, when we're talking here about the preparation for Shabbat, it's forbidden for a person who's traveling to walk more than three parasot. So this is a certain a certain distance that one should not travel too far because then you might be too far away from your own home to prepare for Shabbat. So, for example, Rabbi Klickfeld and I returned back from the trip to the south on a Friday, um, and we don't want to just arrive back off of a plane on time, but we want to also have travel time to be able to get back home and prepare for Shabbat and then get to shul. So it's not just about the travel time in terms of, okay, I don't want to be traveling on Shabbat, but also how long is it going to take you to get back from wherever that place is to then prepare prepare for Shabbos? Um, so it's going to tell you here that a parsa is a Persian mile equal to four um, miles, approximately four kilometers, about two and a half miles. So the... Two and a half miles is not very far, um, but back in the day when you didn't have cars, right, this was, this was, we would have to equate it now to what two and a half miles would have been on foot or on, you know, donkey or horse. Um, that amount of time, you wouldn't want to be away from your home. So in this way, he will reach the, uh, again, when we say he, it just means a person, will reach the destination where they plan to spend Shabbos while it is still early in the day so that he'll have ample time to prepare it the Shabbos meal there, whether they go to other people's homes or to their own home. So if you are preparing Shabbos in your own home, then obviously this amount of 
distance is from your home. If you're going to someone else's home or you're traveling somewhere, you want to make sure that you don't go that far of a distance to, from their home, right? So it's, it's very logical, but it's basically telling you that, that the distance is according to the destination that you are going to be at for Shabbat, not where you live. Um, the above applies concerning a place where a person can prepare their Shabbos needs. If, however, they're located in a place where it's impossible for them to prepare their Shabbos needs, or they're not in a place um, that will certainly be their Shabbos place, it's preferable that they travel even many parsot further. So if you're not going to actually arrive in a place for Shabbat, it's actually good for you to continue traveling to the place that you might get to if you know you're not the one doing the preparations. So if you are, um, let's say you're traveling, if I'm traveling home from, I don't know, college to get to my parents' house, and I know that my mom is going to do all of the preparation for Shabbat, all I have to do is show up, then there's no harm in arriving just on time, because there's no preparation for me to have to do. Maybe there are a few things, but nothing that will take me in an extra amount of time. So this is saying, keep going and actually get there so that you can obviously arrive. You don't have to worry about the amount of of mileage uh, if you're not going to have to worry about the preparation. If a person sent, hold on, Renee. If a person sent to inform them that he's going there for Shabbat, it's permitted for him several parsot further in all cases. So again, if if someone else knows that they're coming and they can do the preparations for them, they can go a little bit further. Yeah, Renee. So what if you? Um, prepare for the Shabbat. You come back from your trip, but you're prepare, you prepare for that ahead of time. You know, you make the food in the challahs or whatever you need. You have it ready prepared in the freezer, hypothetically. Yeah, and, sure. So then does that is that a, is that accountable in in terms of like the time you need to arrive? Then would you be able to technically arrive later? Yeah, it basically is just saying that you want to arrive in enough time to prepare for Shabbat without breaking Shabbat. So. If you know that all the preparations that you've done are setting you up to be able to be prepared for Shabbat, then you're totally fine. If the, if you know that the preparations that you have to do are minimal because you're going to someone else's home for dinner or whatever, then you also can kind of get right up until the end, uh, in terms of your preparation time, because then you'll be able to, um, you'll be able to go a further distance, actually arrive at your destination what, rather than worrying about the the minimal distance for the preparation. And what about a cruise ship? Uh, what, what do you mean? You're on a if cruise ship over Shabbat. Well, if you're on a cruise ship over Shabbat, that's a whole nother scenario because you're in the place that you're going to be doing Shabbat. It then just becomes a question of, how are the preparations done? What do you do for Shabbat? It's just a whole nother scenario. Okay. If you're getting off the cruise ship, that's, that would be closer to this scenario. But if you're staying on the cruise ship, then that's, that's a different kind of Shabbat question. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Any other thoughts or questions on this one? This is just the introduction to this topic. So we're going to get much deeper into it in a second. Okay. So, 
On Friday, it's forbidden to partake of a celebratory feast that one would not ordinarily partake on on a weekday. So for example, if you're not a person, it actually just happened to me last week. If you are not a person who regularly goes, um, goes out to lunch, then don't go out to lunch on Friday because it might be that you'll then be full for Shabbat dinner. You should you should kind of eat minimally, not not to the maximum on a Friday because you want to be able to enjoy your Friday night meal. So last Friday, I took our new uh, director of programming and engagement to lunch. And then it was a lot harder for me to be hungry for dinner because I'm not usually a person who eats, you know, a full lunch out. Um, and so that was that was diff- that was difficult for me. Um this is so even if it is an erusine meal. So even if someone gets married um, on, well, in this case, engaged, but has some kind of celebratory wedding meal um, because of the honor of Shabbat so that one will enter Shabbos desiring to eat and partake of the Shabbos meal with an appetite. So even if you are at some kind of big party or there's a bris or whatever, you still should kind of watch your appetite to make sure that you're not super full by the time that Shabbat dinner comes along. I remember learning this in rabbinical school and thinking this is such an, it's just such an interesting way of thinking about Shabbat in terms of a real preparation of like your whole life, not just, oh, let's make sure the lights are on, but really a preparation of like your body and your soul and, and really getting ready. Yeah, Emily. So let's say that I have a lunch for school that I wouldn't normally go to a sell like a, a yeah. special lunch on Friday. I can still go to that. I just oh, don't yeah. need to eat as much. Exactly. Okay. So you just might not want to like, if you're not a person who eats lunch regularly, or if you're a person who, you know, if you eat after a certain time, you're not going to be hungry for dinner. Like you just wouldn't want to, you wouldn't basically want to enjoy the meal so much that then you can't enjoy Shabbat dinner is what this is saying. So whatever that means for you, you know, if it's one piece of pizza, as opposed to three pieces of pizza, like that, that's what this is saying. Yeah. Jeff. Is there a time limit as to how long after you light candles, you can eat dinner. Um, Say you light candles at it's winter time. It's four thirty, and yeah. you light candles, but you might not typically eat until seven or seven thirty. Oh, I see. No, there's not. Um, there is around kiddush, but you would never get to a place in which you've done kiddush either too early or too late. Um, it just. I, there are rules around it, but it'd be so hard to come by. You're not supposed to eat until you've done kiddush and obviously then motzi. Um, but I do not believe that there's any kind of time limit in between once you've lit candles to when you can can eat dinner. Um, okay. It says all day is forbidden, right? So it's not saying that all day is forbidden to eat, period. It's just that all day is forbidden in terms of partaking in the celebratory feast. The Ramah, that Rabbi Moshe Israelis, who's that um, Ashkenazi opinion, says a Friday meal where one says a zimun. So if you would say birkat hamazon, which typically, you know, back in the day would indicate a pretty, um, a pretty big, a pretty... Um, formal, I should say, meal, right? Because most meals didn't have bread and therefore you didn't do a zimun because you only did a zimun when there was bread. But if you had bread, then it was some kind of celebratory meal. So if there was a zimun, such as a bris or a pidion haben, it is permitted as 
as a, as we've said before. And this is the simple custom. So what he's saying is that it is permitted. He's disagreeing with the, with, um, Rabbi Yosef Karo with the Shulchan Aruch, because what he's saying is actually, according to the Ashkenazi opinion, if you have a celebration going on, you should be able to celebrate eating as much as you want. Um, if there is going to be a blessing said after that meal, if there's going to be bread and therefore a zimun. Um, and then it goes back into the Shulchan Aruch and he says to eat and drink without partaking of the meal, even a meal that one ordinarily partakes of on the weekday, all day is permitted to begin according to the law. Nevertheless, it is a mitzvah to refrain from eating a meal on the ninth hour onward. So when they say ninth hour, halachic hours are very bizarre. So ninth hour does not mean nine o'clock. Um, the ninth hour means an entire day in Judaism is broken down into halachic hours, which is why, for example, like you could stop, you could start saying mincha today. I don't have my phone near me, but let, let's call it 1.30 PM. Whereas tomorrow it might be 1.40 PM and the day after it might be 1.50 PM. The halachic hours are constantly changing because of the way that the that the day is actually subdivided. Um, it's not according to what we call hours, which is very, it's, it's a very complicated concept because we're using the same word to mean very different things, right? We say like 3 p.m., but a halachic hour is longer than 60 minutes um, or, or shorter than 60 minutes, depending on um, what we're dealing with. So when they say ninth hour here, we're not talking about 9 a.m., but the ninth hour of the day, which I would have no way of even calculating for you right off the bat. But um, but just know that that's, you know, it's more than more than half uh, of of the day. So probably you shouldn't be eating like a big meal. Let's call it 2 p.m. I mean, it's not that's not really what it means. But, you know, somewhere in the afternoon that that you would then be full for dinner. Yeah, Lily, uh, Emily. I don't know. I just called you Lily. <laughs> OK, how many how many hours are there divided by like how many like is it divided into yeah let me see if i can actually show you i have a isn't chart. it isn't it 60 no what's the halakwa hmm 60 hours in a day uh-uh um not hours then there's something that's 60 that has to do with calculating calendar and i thought it was 60 in a i don't think so it's... i'm not remembering yeah, let me um let me try to open this. Does it begin at sunrise? So I'll sh- I'll show you. I have a whole graphic that I can show you. It'll be easier than me explaining uh, without a graphic because you'll see it is a very bizarre. There's a there's an app for people who are very excited about this. There's an app called Maizmanim, and it tells you the different hours of the day that you can do different things. And it's according to the halachic hours. So if that's exciting to you, A, you should go to rabbinical school and B, um, this is what it looks like. Okay. So what you can see here, is this too small for you to see? Okay. So what you can see here, this was created by a classmate of mine named Gay Botnik, which is why it says Gay Botnik on it. Um, so what you'll see here is it's divided into 12 hours, right? Which is, which is obviously different than our day. Um, you'll see right here where it says Amud HaShachar. Amud means to stand and Shachar means light or day. So it's like the first light of the day. 
Misha Yakir is a time when there's a little bit more light and you could under, you could like see people. Netzachama is the breaking through of the sun. So really sunrise. Chatzot is like noon. Um, and it's in between the first and the 12th hour. But you can see here that the way in which Gabe is showing this to you is that there's, there's diff, these different hours are not, you know, one one 60 minute period to another 60 minute period they're broken down in such a way that you would be saying the shema um and the amida and and other elements of of prayer life most of the time um according to these hours so Plaga uh, Mincha, for example, is, let me see if it shows you a picture here. No, it doesn't. So Plaga Mincha is like the, the time around when we would probably say Mincha. Um, Shkia is when the sun is going down. And then Seda Kochavim is like Havdalah time when the, when it's pitch black outside and you can see stars. So you can see a little bit of what it looks like uh down here he showed you a little little graphics here but these these hours here these halachic hours are then broken down again i'll show you the maizmanim app now um are broken down differently every day based on how much sunlight we have so versus obviously nighttime um so here i'll put in our I put in our zip code. So you'll see. So this is today. Today is Tuesday, February 8th. And it's telling us the current time is 7.20. So Alota Shahar today was 5.29 and 19 seconds. Um, and then the earliest time you can put on Talison's fill-in, which is called Misha Yakir, is 5.58. Okay, and then sunrise, Neta Hamas was at 6.54. The last time to say Kriyat Shema, if you want to be um, stringent, if you want to be the the most um, kind of machmir position, you would be 848. Or if you want to be, give yourself a little more time, it's 926. The last time you can say the Amida is 1020. Midday today was actually very close to noon. It was 1207. The earliest mincha we could have done was at 1237. The last mincha we could have done um, was somewhere in between 423 and 531. There are, there are rules around putting Mincha and, um, and Marif together. So sunset was at 531. Um, we at Temple Betham did Mincha at 515 so that we did Marif at 530. And then nightfall was at 609. And then the, the time that the stars probably came out for us was closer to 643, though it says here at Seda Kochavim. So you can see here that, you know, from 529 to 643, that's not 12 hours, right? That's actually a little bit longer on either side, but these are the ways that it's being broken down. And you can see it's not in 60 minute increments. There, there's longer periods of time in between. So now we're on a complete tangent, except for now you can see what halachic hours look like. Um, and if you're very curious about what halachic hours are per day, you can download the app Maizmanim and you can see day to day what the what the different hours are. Yeah, Gary, go ahead. I, my, this is fascinating because I never knew this. Um, yeah. Is not that I will do it, but I mean, my question <laughs> is, who does this and what yeah. are the increments? Is, is LA different than Orange County? Or you know, I just don't know where the where the increments are on that. 
Yeah, great question. So the increments are different because it's dependent on how much sun you get. So for example, what if the closer you live to the north, um, the the longer, let me see if I can do this correctly. The north has longer sun in the summertime. Is that true? Yes. So for example, if you go to camp in the northwest or the northeast, you're going to have Havdalah much later than if you go to camp in Southern California, for example. So even though I might do Havdalah at 8 p.m. at Ramah Ojai, even if I'm in the same time zone as uh, Northern California, uh, Havdalah is going to be later. I guess so, that I would understand, but I was, my question is, what are the, who does the next increment? Let's say when you're in LA and you go to Santa Barbara, is that a totally different one? Because clearly they're different numbers. It's, if it's, if it's LA to Santa Barbara, it's like by minutes. It's not, it's not by hours, you know, the differences. So it's, it is pretty similar if you're going like within a state, but, but if you go north to south or if you go, you know, across state lines, then it's different. Yeah. And who does it? rabbis i mean rabbis put this together and then and then follow it um when rabbi clayfeld and i are putting together the daily minion times for betham we go according to this app um because we want to know when the earliest mincha when the latest mincha etc any other questions on this i know it's like a, a very nuanced topic okay Great. So we'll go back to Shabbat, though I'm glad you now know what ninth hour means. I'm also teaching my sixth graders right now about when they can say the Shema, and there's a bit in there about the different halachic hours, and they were so confused because, you know, when you're in sixth grade, you're very, uh, you're, you're de- developmental, um, uh, processing in terms of education is, is quite, quite black and white. And so when you use the word hours, <laughs> they're like, wait, so does that mean six o'clock? I'm like, no, no, no. It's just the six halachic hours. No, it doesn't, doesn't help you at all. Um, but, but that is, that is what it means. There's, there is a, there is a different breakdown. So, okay. Let's go back to, ah, okay, great. Lost my tab. All right. Here we are. Uh, all right. So, so it's the way of people to fast on every Arab Shabbat. So what the Shulchan Aruch is saying here is like, in order for you to not worry about being hungry for Shabbat dinner, just don't eat on Friday. Um, some people do hold by this. Some people go to the mikvah in the morning, don't then eat during the day and then eat a very big feast on Friday evening. I would say that like, I don't know, 95% of Los Angeles Jews do not do this. Um, at least the ones that I know. It just, it, you know, we're working full days. We don't have the kind of Israel schedule where you take Friday off and you prepare for Shabbat only, et cetera, et cetera. So most people do not do this, but it is one way that if you, if you know yourself to be someone who gets full by eating multiple meals a day, then you either shouldn't eat at all, or you should eat a smaller meal on Friday before you have Shabbat dinner. Pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Okay. So if one accepts upon themselves to fast on Arab Shabbat on Friday, one must fast until the stars come out, unless they clarify the time of acceptance of the fast until the congregation finishes their prayer. So 
Kabbalat Shabbat, sometimes, as we know, ends before the stars actually come out, um, depending on the time that you start Kabbalat Shabbat, because you can start it close to Mincha and different times of the year, that's further away from Mari. So if you have decided that you're going to fast on Shabbat, or on Friday, I should say, in preparation for Shabbat, then you either do it all the way, right? You do it until the light, the stars come out until you, um, until Shabbat has really happened, or you decide, just like you might decide a personal family minhag, you decide, okay, I'm actually going to, I'm going to do it, but only until the end of Kabbalat Shabbat so that I can go home and eat um, right after Kabbalah Shabbat is over before Mari. So that would be before the stars come out. But again, the later we get in the year, you know, the, the stars might come out at like 8.15 and you might want to eat before that. So in order to be able to also stick to a regular schedule, you might decide, okay, I'm not going to eat during the day, but only until after Kabbalah Shabbat. And then you would dive into Kabbalah Shabbat and then you'd be able to eat after that. Um, uh oh <laughs> funny table table was mixing mixing her cultures okay so the ramah rabbi moshe israelis says there are those who say that one does not complete the fast except for when they leave the shul to eat meaning if they are not well i'll just keep going therefore for an individual fast one does not complete and it is good to clarify this at the time of acceptance of the fast during a public fast one completes the fast and this is our custom if the fast was undertaken because of a disturbing dream, <laughs> one should complete the fast until the appearance of the stars. Okay, there's a lot of like random nuanced comment, uh, 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 not comments, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, whatever topics that are coming up here. One of them is that supposedly if you have what, what they're calling a disturbing dream, which is really just like an inappropriate dream. Um, you're supposed to go to the mikvah in the morning and then you're supposed to fast all day to kind of like repent for the dream that you had. I always thought this was really funny as if like you had control over the dreams that you were having and therefore now you're repenting, but okay, sure, fine. Um, that part, we're not going to spend too much time talking about, but this is, this is basic, the Ramah here, Rabbi Moshe Israelis is basically saying that the, when what is an individual fast, when you've kind of taken it upon yourself, you can um, you can kind of decide when it's over, right? That if you've left shul, then you can go and eat. But the um, you have to kind of you have to decide that from the time that you start the fast, right? You can't you can't get hungry and then decide. Oh, I think that maybe we should you know have have something to eat now when you were supposed to have done that. Um, what By the time the stars come out, you have to decide at the beginning, okay, I'm not going to go all the way until the stars come out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it after Shul. So this is just basically saying that there is a difference between a public fast and a private fast and the way in which you would end that fast is different based on your own private kind of acceptance of the fasting or the fact that everybody is fasting with, with you, which is obviously not the case for Friday. Um, okay. A person should arise on Friday early to prepare for Shabbat. 
Even if there are a lot of people to help you, it says your servants, you should find something small to do for the honor of Shabbat. So similar to how we think about prayer, you should want to get up and be excited to prepare for Shabbat. This is a fun thing that you are eager to do. In the winter months, this is a lot easier because you only have so many hours to actually prepare. So a lot of people, including myself, wake up much earlier on a Friday to start preparing for Shabbat than if I know that I can come home from work and prepare Shabbat without rushing later on in like the spring and summer months. We see this with Rav Chista, who would cut vegetables finely. Uh, so this is actually a really beautiful halakha before I go into it, just so you can see. We often talk about how like the women took care of the home, but this is actually very specifically, and it's based off of a Gemara, very specifically pointing out the ways in which the men of the household used to prepare for Shabbat. Um, that they would take that responsibility as well. You know, we, we expect that in 2022, but we don't necessarily expect that in the time of the Gemara or in the time of the Shulchan Aruch. And this is, this is about to show you exactly the things that these men would do. And again, this is a shorter version of what comes in the Gemara earlier than this, um, than this piece here. So we see this with Rav Chista, who would cut vegetables finally. That was his job. Uh, Rabbah and Rav Yosef, so the um, Rav Yosef and his wife, who would, or actually Rava, maybe? It might not be his wife. Yeah, I think it's Rava. And Rav Yosef, so two men, um, not in the same household, but who would chop wood. Rabbi Zera, who would light the flame. And Rav Nachman, who would clean the house and replace the weekday cutlery with cutlery designated for Shabbat. So these were their jobs. These were their jobs in the house. We assume that the women did all the other things or the servants or whoever. But this is pointing out that these were the jobs of the men. We can emulate these people and one should not say it is unbecoming of me. Right. So this is the Shulchan Aruch. This is Yosef Karo saying, sorry, men, but this is what what he means. Um, This is not above you. Right. You, too, need to help prepare for Shabbat. And just because your wife is the one who runs the household back in, you know, the 500s and and even you know later on during the Shulchan Aruch time this is something that you need to take on for yourself as well this is not just something that you can allow your servants to do because they're beneath you or your wife to do because she does it every other day of the week you need to be involved and that's a huge step right it's a huge thing to say um and something that is really very powerful to hear uh, especially in 2022 when some of this has gone away, but not not all of it. Uh, and we're also so quick to say, oh, the men, you know, they just assume that the women did everything. Well, we can see here that that's definitely not the case. Yeah, Emily. So this would apply when Shabbat was actually at their house, though, because if you travel to someone else's house for it, what are the ex- expectations of what you can prepare? Yeah, great. So there there aren't necessarily expectations of what to prepare at that point, but what we'll get to a little bit later on is what is eligible to prepare based on the law of carrying. So, um, so the men of the household would have much more of that stringency upon them in terms of carrying the dish or the whatever um, to the house that you might be hosted at. But yeah, you're right. This is specifically for if people are coming to their home or if they're just having, you know, an intimate Shabbat at their, at their house. Yeah. Great question. Um, okay. So Rabbi Moshe Israelis says, additionally, one should sharpen his knife to ease eating on Arab Shabbat for this honor. The Shabbat helps him eat. 
I just think this is very funny. He's basically reminding you, make sure that your knife is sharp because it's annoying to not have a sharp knife and you should make sure that your knife is sharp. <laughs> I'm not sure why it happens in this particular um, seif, this particular section, but sure. Yeah, great. Make sure that your knife is sharp. Um, I might have said that wrong. I'm actually not sure how to pronounce that. Um, a person should have a lot of meat and should have a lot of wine and should have a lot of like tasty things, basically. Um, just basically means according to what they're able to have, right? If you are someone who is extremely poor, you might not be able to have all three of these things. But you should be able to have one or two of these things because Shabbat should be a different day. So you might be eating, you know, cabbage soup and bread every day for um, for dinner. But when it comes to Shabbat, you should be able to have something special that will make your your house and your Shabbos table feel enhanced and feel like a an extra uh, special experience. Any questions on that? We're kind of moving away from this now into work. No. By the way, I just got a notification on my watch that Julia is teaching tonight. So clearly the calendar is wrong, which is probably why we don't have so many people tonight because she's not teaching tonight. Um, but it might have said that somewhere. Okay, Chai, well, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say I did see that when I'd written down the dates for Julia. Anyway, for yeah. what it's worth. Um, and I understand that the Shulchan Aruch isn't focused necessarily on this kind of thing, but I still would have expected on the discussion of preparation for Shabbos, there would be something that says, get a little drosh ready, think about the Parsha, you know, not just sharpen your knife and get the food ready, but yeah. uh, even if it didn't go into detail, reminder saying, and these are the other things you should think about. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting statement. And I, I'm just not remembering the entire, you know, section of Hilchot Shabbat right now to remember if it doesn't come up later. But you're right that when we start naming rabbis, you would expect not just to talk about the sharpening of your knife, but to also talk about the sharpening of your mind um, and and wanting to know that there was going to be some kind of Torah learning around the table. Um, so it's a really good point. My guess is knowing what some of the halachot are around a Shabbos table. My guess is that it comes up a little bit later, but I like the connection that you're making to, you know, we're talking about rabbis. Shouldn't it be that, that this is where this, um, this would come up. So that's a really, a really good point. Okay. So Simon 251, moving right along here. Um, so what it's going to say here is Shalola. So Malacha Be'er Shabbat. Um, so you're not supposed to do any kind of work on Friday from Mincha onwards. So even though you don't take in Shabbat until after Mincha, as you all know, what this is saying is you shouldn't be doing any more work. Now, I, I can promise you um, that every clergy you know at Temple Beth Am is not abiding by this rule um, because between Mincha and Kabbalat Shabbat, we have like, oh, I don't know, uh, 20 minutes that is precious time to finish a dish or do a whatever that you that you need to be able to do. Now, if we're at shul, then yes, we have stopped working because we start with mincha and we go straight into Kabbalah Shabbat. But if what the Shulchan Aruch is getting at is just mincha time 
until Shabbat begins, then definitely not. I mean, we're all still at work typically around Mincha time, um, at least when Mincha time begins. So this is really a stringent opinion that, you know, you would, you would hope, hope to hold by, but definitely is not something that is particularly, um, uh, doable, I would say in today's, today's world. So one who performs work on Air Shabbat from Mincha time onward will not see a sign of blessing. <laughs> some Mefarshim, some commentators say that Mincha means from Mincha Gedola, and some Mefarshim say it means from Mincha Katana. So those are the, just the two different times of being able to start. So some say it's from the earliest time you can start, and some say it's from the latest time you can start. And then Ramah, the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis says, specifically purposefully setting about to perform significant work. So this isn't just like, don't finish up your work. This is don't start a new task, right? Don't decide, oh, my, um, I don't know, my chair is broken. So now I need to fix my chair. Don't start that at Mincha, start that earlier. But if you're in the middle of a task, you can continue to do it. But if someone performs a casual task for an hour and it is not significant, it is permitted. So again, like if you're finishing up something that you've been working on, that's totally fine because it's not a significant task. Um, therefore, it's permitted to write a casual letter and something similar to that, right? So you aren't allowed to write on Shabbat. But if it's not something that, you know, if it's not an email that must go out, but it's just you going through your emails, you can continue to do that. But if it's something that you really need to like start in terms of a project, don't send that out between Mincha and, and, um, and Shabbat starting. Any thoughts or comments on that? It's a lovely idea, but yeah, Taiwo. Um, I don't know why why my mind went there, but it did. But the same way, like before Pesach, you have to worry about your alimentary canal and not having chumets in the canal because it's not just when the, the time changes and all right, it's sundown, it's Pesach. You have to think about what your body's doing. This is, I think, a mind attention thing, too, that you have to make sure enough before that you're able to focus your attention on what you're supposed to focus on. Yeah. I mean, right, I, exactly. they're, they're very different, but it seems to me there's the analog and how the rabbis thought about preparation and what it takes that you can't stop on a dime. Sure. Sure. And I also think that in the stop on the dime thing, I think is, is spot on because I think that it also speaks to the fact that sometimes when you start a project, it's hard to stop it. And you want to, you would want to make sure that if you really start something at that point that you'd be able to stop it before Shabbat starts. And so that's why if it's just kind of a menial task, we assume you, oh, you don't have to answer all those emails. You'll just answer the ones that you need to answer. Um, and then, and then move on. So yeah, it's uh, though, as you pointed out, a different, a, a very different case. It is the same kind of, you know, mindset, intentionality, et cetera. Um, okay. So you're able to, Fix your clothes and your vessels in order to use them on Shabbat all day long. So if you are going to need this particular piece of clothing, or if you're, I think fix here could also be clean, um, right? A vessel that you're going to use on Shabbat, you're allowed to do that all day long. The Ramah says, uh, this is the law as it relates to your friend's clothes. 
if it is necessary for Shabbat and you do not receive a reward. Um, so the idea that, that you are not going to benefit from it, right. Or get, get money or anything like that. You can also help your friend with their clothes. So this is going back to Emily's question in terms of, is it your house or someone else's house, right? This really is referring to, to any situation. This law applies to one who writes books for himself in the course of his studies. So if you, if you're someone who works as an author, this same thing applies applies to you. Um, the Ramah says, but it's forbidden to write for his friend for money. One may get a haircut all day, even from a Jewish barber. There are those who lessen the amount they study on Arab Shabbat in order to perform all the necessities for Shabbat. So this is actually kind of counter to what Taiba was saying before. Um, but you're allowed to prepare yourself for Shabbat. So that's why the haircut is okay. That's why um, getting these vessels um, are okay to do. Um, the, the amount that you study, right, is, is interesting here because you would, you would want to make sure that you could prepare for Shabbat and therefore you're not studying all day long, but also interesting to counter what, what Taiba was saying, which is you're also going to want to know some Torah to share at a table. So interesting that you would lessen your study on Shabbat, right? I definitely don't follow this. I study much more Torah on Friday in preparation for Shabbat than I do any other day, uh, day of the week. Um, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't hinder my ability to, um, to prepare for Shabbat. So they're just, so, basically so you're saying, not supposed to do a certain, you just muted yourself. Sorry. You're not supposed to prepare your sermon. Well, no, it's not saying that you, you can, but you just can't let it get in the way of your preparation for Shabbat. So if, if me preparing a sermon is not going to allow me to cook dinner, then I should prepare my sermon the day before. It's saying that one is more important than the other. And that is the preparation for Shabbat that doesn't have to do with Torah. Questions on this? Thoughts, comments? Okay. Um, give me one second. Speaking of Shabbat. Um, Um, many of you know that I'm running this conference this weekend and Rabbi Klickfeld just needed to know something. So I just need to respond to that very quickly. Okay. So this Siman um, says it's permitted to start an action on Friday near darkness, even though the work cannot be completed on Friday and only can be finished on Shabbat. So this is interesting, right? There are certain actions that you actually are allowed to start right before Shabbat starts but that you know you're going to come back to on Saturday. So certain things are not that way, but these actions that we're about to talk about are okay to start right before Shabbat and continue after Shabbat has ended. It's permitted to soak or dissolve an ink or a dye in water if it dissolves during Shabbat. So this is also why you can make, um, well, not exactly. I won't, I won't equate that example. But you can, if you, for example, are, I don't know, I've never done this, but dyeing a shirt and you put it in some kind of dye in a tub, you can start that process before Shabbat and know that it's going to happen over Shabbat, though you're not having, you aren't doing anything to it. You just 
you started the action before Shabbat started and you know that it's going to finish afterwards. It's permitted to put bundles of flax in the oven in order that they be whitened. Um, so I know nothing of flax, but you're basically allowed to set up flax so that it is um, ready for use by the end of Shabbat. And it's permitted to put wool inside a large pot that is not on the fire and is covered with mud. No idea what that means or why, but again, just something that you can prepare that can be used over Shabbat. Um, But if the pot is on the fire, it is forbidden, lest one stirs the coals. So this is where we get to, let me see if I can find the Hebrew easily for you to, um, to see. So Shema Yechateh right here is saying that you don't want to stoke the coals, right? You don't want the, let me see if it gives you a translation. Oh, okay. That's too bad. Okay. Um, but just the idea that you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to touch the fire, right? If there's a fire on, this is why people have a blech. If a fire is on, you just leave it. You don't have to touch it. It just remains hot. But you wouldn't want to put something on the stove or on heat of any kind that might um, urge you to touch it or to somehow play with the fire such that it gets a little bit hotter or the fire doesn't go out or whatever that is. Um, you don't want it to, you don't want to, to touch the fire in any way on Shabbat. And even if it is not on the fire, but it isn't covered in mud, it is forbidden, lest you stir it with his hand. So if you put something, if you, in this case, it's talking about wool um, in a large pot. So for some reason, again, I don't know enough about wool to know why this is really an issue. But even if it's not on fire and and therefore you might be able to touch it with your hand, you still shouldn't do it because unless it's covered and therefore un touchable by you, you might come to stir it and you're not supposed to be stirring it again for whatever reason. I don't, I don't understand wool um, enough to understand what the, what the problematic piece here is. The one who stirs the pot, even if it is not on the fire is liable before, because of cooking, excuse me. So this is considered cooking, even if it's not something to to eat, right? In this case, wool, but that's the same case for like I don't know, chulant or, um, that, that's why the chulant needs just like, just sits, right? You don't touch it. You don't deal with it. It just, it just happens. Um, I think of another example, any kind of soup, right? Like you would want it to be cooked before Shabbat so that when you stir it, you're not stirring it so that you are, um, making it go faster or making the the cooking process happen differently. You're just allowing it to sit. Uh, It is permitted to spread out traps for animals, birds, and fish, even though they will be trapped on Shabbat. So you're not allowed to trap on Shabbat actively, but you are allowed to set out traps on Shabbat, which is very interesting. It is permitted to sell to non-Jews and load it for him, load it for him close to dark, as long as he leaves the door of his house while it is still day. So meaning the transactional um, moment of selling has to happen before dark, but, or the, the moment of uh, kind of intentionality to go out and sell needs to happen before dark, but the actual transaction can happen anytime before Shabbat, right? You can sell something right up before Shabbat. We don't really experience that today. 
I mean, you might in an individual way, but in terms of merchants, um, that doesn't really happen so much for us because restaurants close and, and kosher markets close, et cetera, um, before, we, before we would even get to this point um, on Shabbat. Yeah, Taibo. Um, so, and I'm not, not at all an animal person. I mean, I don't know a lot about animal husbandry, but I always thought the halakha was that you have to ensure that animals are not uncomfortable or in pain on Shabbos. The, the big example being animals that need to be milked. If they're not milked for 25 hours, it's going to be pain. So I would think traps would be painful for animals. It is yeah. the distinction that domesticated animals, the person has taken responsibility for in a different way. So that's like part of your household. So you can do things, even if it's a malacha, if it's work on Shabbos to care for the animals. So, I mean, I'm sputtering a little because I always thought the not causing animals pain was a reason in the hierarchy of what you can and cannot do in terms of forbidden work. But traps are going to cause animals pain. Yeah. My guess, I also do not know much about, you know, what this means for an animal, but my guess is that you would be trapping these animals specifically for food. So I don't think the traps would actually, I mean, they might not be comfortable, but I don't think these are traps to kill the animals because you're not allowed to trap for killing, um, but rather they would just trap to make sure the animal doesn't go anywhere uh, and and then you would slaughter it in a kosher way for food later on. Oh, so there may be a better word in English, I don't know, Hebrew is cage. You can set out. Yeah. Because traps, I think of the things like with the, that would snap on a limb. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah, like we're thinking like rat traps. Yeah. Um, mutar lifros. Yeah, lifros is to like, to catch. Why aren't these words translatable? Mm, this is not helpful. Um, yeah, so to put out, yeah, it, it says like a net or a trap or a bow. Um, yeah, that makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't have to do anything active. You've done it before. You're not going to call You're not going to, it might not be direct pain. I guess they might be hungry. Yeah. And then after Shabbos, you can go get the animal for whatever exactly. purpose. Exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I seem to understand that it's coming to say. Cause it says when we try lifros means chaya. So you can spread out is the word that lifros means like to put out all over. Mitzodot chaya is like a trap or a, a cage or a net or something for an animal and for ofot and dagim for birds and for fish. Um, yeah. 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 Thank you for that distinction. Um, so then the Ramah says, and there are those that permit it when the non-Jew leaves on Shabbat, if the non-Jew designates a place on the next day in the house of a Jew, and there are those who are strict in this manner. So the Ramah is specifically answering this last piece of the Shulchan Aruch here in terms of the selling to non-Jews. Um, and permit to... And there are those that permit it when the non-Jew leaves on Shabbat, right? Like that, that the non-Jew is the one leaving the home. Um, if there is a next, if, if the next day, um, the, the Jewish person is the one who's doing the transaction, right? So this is flipping it around to say it, it would be okay for the, 
for the Jewish person to not be going somewhere, but for the non-Jew to be going to them on Shabbat, knowing that after Shabbat, this would all be taking place. Um, and then there are those who are strict, meaning there are people who will not allow this to happen because they know that the, the transactional, at least thought, <laughs> is happening on Shabbat. Um, and so they won't allow it to happen. Okay, let's try to do one more before we get to eight. I think we can probably try to do it. A person is permitted to give his garment to a non-Jewish launderer and his hides to a non-Jewish leather worker to work on close to nightfall if he established a price or he does them for a favor and he does not tell him to do it on Shabbat, the non-Jew performs the work in his house. So you might not know when this non-Jewish person is going to launder your clothes or take care of your hides, but you are allowed to, before Shabbat, give those things to a non-Jew and allow them to do the work whenever the work is going to happen, right? Especially if you've paid them beforehand, you you now know that that work is basically in their hands and they are able to do it whenever is best for them. Um, and so that's, that's a, um, it's a good way of them knowing that uh, the work is getting done, but not necessarily when. And so they're kind of in the clear in terms of their own liability for Shabbat Malacha, for Shabbat work. The Ramah says if he did not fix a price, it is forbidden on Erev Shabbat. Um, and that there is a difference if one does it for free for this is a favor. So if you don't either pay ahead of time or know how much you're going to pay after Shabbat, it's a little bit of a different process because and problem because it's technically still yours, right? You haven't decided how much you are going to pay them or know that after Shabbat, you are going to pay them a certain amount of money. And so the the responsibility is almost like the onus is kind of still on you. And therefore it's as if you are still doing the work on Shabbat. I would call this a really gray area <laughs> um, because I think, especially in today's day, when you give something over to somebody else, even if you don't know how much you're going to pay them, you expect to pay them something. It's no longer yours. You don't expect to say, oh, sorry, I didn't know it was going to be that much. Give it back to me. No, they're dry cleaning your clothes or they're doing whatever. It's it, it's a little bit of a different situation. I think this is probably, you know, back in the day when there were people doing very specific tasks for different amounts of money that weren't listed on a website. <laughs> um, and that, you know, those, those different amounts of money were, were told to you upon, um, upon drop off or upon, you know, giving them whatever it was that they were going to be working on. So I, I, it's, I think in today's day, it's a little bit of a more gray area. The Shulchan Aruf goes on to say, if he sees that the, perf- that, that the non-Jew performs his work on Shabbat, if it was being done as a favor, he must tell him it cannot be done on Shabbat. So if the person knows that the laundromat, for example, is only open on Saturdays and you're going to pay for that to be done, well, then you can't go to that laundromat. But if you, if it's a good friend of yours who owns the laundromat and he's doing it as a favor to you and you know that he's not going to get any benefit from it, that might be okay. I personally don't see any difference in that. He's still doing the work, but there seems to be something in terms of just the monetary attachment to the item um, and paying for that work to be done on Shabbat versus any other day of the week. Um, and the Ramah just adds, even if you give it to him on a Tuesday, but you know that the only day that he does the work is on Shabbat, this, this still applies, right? It still applies that if it's being done for a cost, it shouldn't be done on Shabbat. 
And if it's being done as a favor, it, it can be done. Um, any, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, Jeff. Well, it seems to say that it cannot be done on Shabbat. Right. So I thought you just said if it's a favor, it could be. No, sorry. If if he's seen it as a favor, the the man, sorry, I I can tell now why this was unclear. If he's seen it as a favor, then he could say to his friend, I know you're only open on Saturdays, but you have to do it on a different day for me. Right? Like if it's a favor, if your friend owns the laundromat, then they just need to know that they can't do it on Saturday, which is the day that the place is open. They have to do it on a different day for you. But if if you know for a fact that the place is open only on Saturday, like that's the most prohibited. You can't even give it to them. But if it's being done as a favor, you just have to make sure that they know that they just can't do it on Shabbat. Yeah. Sorry, that wasn't clear. I I now can hear back in my in my explanation why that wasn't clear the first time, but hopefully that makes more sense now. Or you just um, go to a different cleaner. Right, right. Or just don't give it to your friend. Yeah, exactly. Um Okay, we can just do this last one at eight o'clock. If there was a well-known malacha, so if there is something well-known that's considered work that you're not supposed to be doing, and it's known that this is, um, that it's being done by a Jew and it's being performed in a publicized place, you shouldn't allow it to happen, right? Um, which is pretty, pretty understandable, right? Like you shouldn't be publicizing work that you do not believe should be done on Shabbat, even if there is some work around for why it's being done, similar to this laundry situation, actually, you should make sure that you aren't, again, this is a little bit of Marit Ayn, you're not publicizing something that other people might think is okay when you know it's not actually okay. Um, okay, so we'll end with that. Uh, hope to see Many of you, not next week, next week I have a board meeting, so the week after, um, but uh, hope to see many of you at Cult of Fila at some point this weekend, and uh, yeah, have a great Shabbat. I'll see y'all soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.